Today's podcast is brought to you by Season 2 of the UCB Show, streaming exclusively on CISO, which is NBC's digital comedy platform. The UCB Show, presented by the founding four of Matt Besser, Amy Poehler, Ian Roberts, and Matt Walsh, is filmed in front of a live audience at the UCB Sunset Theater in Hollywood. Showcasing the best sketch comedy, stand-up, and characters you can find regularly in the UCB theaters in L.A. and New York City. To watch the UCB show, go to CISO.com. If you sign up with promo code COMIC, you'll get two free months of CISO. That's right, two free months of unlimited ad-free comedy delivered to your favorite devices. It's only $3.99 per month after that. I'm a subscriber, and I like to call up new episodes of Saturday Night Live on Sunday mornings so I can zip through it without all of the ads. CISO also has a library of classic comedy from America and Great Britain, plus new original series including Bajillion Dollar Properties, Take My Wife, and Harmon Quest. If you've enjoyed my podcast interviews with Janine Garofalo, Lori Kilmartin, Cameron Esposito, Doug Stanhope, or Brian Prosane, then you can check out their newest stand-up specials immediately afterward on CISO. Go to SEESO.com to start your free trial and get exclusive access to the UCB show, plus much more in streaming comedy. Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of The Comics Comic, found wherever you can type The Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Mike Rice was a stand-up comedian audience warm-up guy for The Maury Povich Show in Spin City, before he broke through as a writer for the Sklar Brothers in their MTV series Apartment 2F. Royce later helped his friend Ray Romano on a book, and eventually his hit CBS sitcom Everybody Loves Raymond. Since then, Royce has gone on to run the shows for Louis C.K.'s Lucky Louie, TNT's Men of a Certain Age, and Fox's Enlisted. All of those are more heralded now than the ratings ever were, and Royce won the Peabody Award for co-creating Men of a Certain Age. Now he's co-written and co-showrunning the new version of Norman Lear's One Day at a Time, which is available exclusively on Netflix. So let's get to it! So, Mike Royce, I'm catching you on a uh, fateful, pivotal day for you. Yes. It's the launch of the One Day at a Time do we call it a reboot, a remake, a reimagination? A reimagining is the, you know, highfalutin way that we're talking about it. But yeah, they dropped it at actually 3 a.m. East Coast time last night. So people have been, there are those people who wake up and like watch it all because they want right. to be first. But generally speaking, a lot of people are probably going to start watching it tonight because it's Friday, you know. So, and as, uh, you know, as we've talked already, you know, the re- reviews have been great. And, uh, Very fortunate, yes. So, and I look around the room, and I'm reminded of your your previous TV projects. <laughs> and yes. this has to be a much different launch day for you than Enlisted was on Fox, and Men yes. of a Certain Age on TNT, and uh, especially yes. Lucky Louie on HBO. <laughs> yes, yes, it's much less stressful because the Nielsen's are not a thing. Right. It doesn't mean obviously. Netflix has numbers, and we have to pull some numbers because if nobody's watching the show, then uh, they won't renew us. But I, because they don't tell us the numbers, I am allowed to live in blissful ignorance. <laughs> and I got told just 
tweet and check, you know, social media, and that's all you need to worry. I mean, I don't right. need, need to worry about it, but the Netflix people are basically like, yeah, don't. It's fine. We'll we'll tell you when we tell you, and you know, we think they're going to probably tell us in a few weeks. We're very hopeful that we get a renewal. Um, again, because the reviews have been great. But yes, those enlisted men of a certain age. I mean, men of a certain age premiered. It premiered after the highest rated show on TNT, which was The Closer at the time. Oh my goodness! <laughs> I've got my original. Sean press screener. is showing me an original press screener of Men of a Certain Age. I say, I, I thought I was the only one who had those. <laughs> um, yeah, and so there was a lot of pressure to do well, mm-hmm. and we did well. But it also the rating started to fall off after that because it wasn't really a good match with the closer, but that was you know super um, stressful. And then Enlisted premiered mid season, and then it moves us around every five seconds, and right. that was a bloodbath of scheduling. So we just don't have that, you know. It's out, and then you just tell people go watch it. But the critics like both of those projects. Yes, I'm fortunate that I listen. I'd rather do good work that maybe doesn't last forever than. Work that I think sucks. That's uh, you know ten years of it. Because right. I'd rather I just you know <laughs> I want to do things I like. How how else is this this show different for you? I, I obviously you know you're reimagining a show that was one of Norman Lear's classics. Right. So you're working with a legend from the business. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, right there, it's a fantastic work experience. It's it's that's certainly what drew me to it, and. Um, uh, the, I guess the overall great thing about it, it, it was, it was it, it, the, the attraction of existing material, the, mm-hmm. all the reason they have all these reboots is so that you can get your foot in the door, you know, with both the people who are buying projects. In other words, if you go to them with an original project, it's just an uphill climb to just pitch it. Here are some original characters. People's eyes start to glaze over because it's, you're creating a whole new world in front of them. It's a much, Harder thing, obviously, as opposed to going in a room and going, it's lethal weapon. You know what that is, right? <laughs> you know, and, and, and then it's the same thing with the American public. They, it comes pre in with all the shows that are out. You understand why it's a very attractive thing to have a pre existing something that gives you a leg up that the public can go, Oh, right. Like I recognize that as a, cause you know, you, you've driven around, seen a billboard for a show and gone like, I don't know what the hell that is. <laughs> you know, I see that's a new show. I don't know what they're trying to do. I don't mm-hmm. know what it is. So. So it's an attractive thing. So we had that advantage with one day at a time being a pre, uh, a thing that had existed before, but we're also allowed to completely rethink it. Right. And really just retain the barest premise of single mom. Uh, you know, they wanted to keep Schneider, but I don't think, I think if we had decided to get rid of Schneider, they would have been okay with it. But for what, what, it ended up working out that he really fit into our world really well and was a, the reimagining of the character was a good contrast to our blue collar family. Um, so it was to be, to me, the best of both worlds. Do you believe in the, the talk of too much TV or peak TV? Well, you mean the, t- I mean, I don't think it's, I, it has pros and cons like anything else. The, the cons are when you do something that you really want a million, well, a million is not a lot of people, but <laughs> a million people, um, when you have something that you think could be a giant hit. And in this niche, niche kind of uh, atmosphere, it doesn't necessarily get cut through the noise enough to get that big, broad audience. Right. Um, but I'd much rather have it th- this way, where there's many, many more opportunities to work, 
And because it's so spread out, I, I really believe we're in a we're really in the era. There's not enough network executives to control everything. They, there really is like, and I'm not trying to slam them either because there's lots of great executives. But the the basic thing is the volume of projects has grown so much that they, you know, originality a- appeals to them. It's mm-hmm. just it, it's there's less cookie cutter stuff because, you know, 10, 20 years ago it was something would be a hit and then suddenly 18 things would imitate it on ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox. Right. And it would just go in that cycle. Friends is popular and now we'll make a million friend shows. It's, you know, that, it's not that that doesn't still happen on some level, but there's, I mean, you see on Netflix, on, Am- on Amazon, on Hulu, you know, Aziz Ansari's show wouldn't exist 10 years ago. Louie's show wouldn't exist 10 years ago. Uh, uh, well, I guess 10's cutting it close, but you know what I'm saying. The, the, just the fact that, well, we need stuff. So right. go do something and we're not going to try and control you as much. Right, because I guess Louis, Lucky Louie was 11 years ago. Yes. Yeah. So. Crazy. The unaired second season <laughs> would have been 10 years ago. Well, there's actually eight scripts for that show that they bought and that we wrote and that, you know, we were all prepared to be renewed and then they didn't renew us. But there's eight pretty good, pretty darn good scripts out there somewhere. Hmm. I mean, I have them. <laughs> I'll forward them to the Library of Congress immediately. <laughs> well, you know, Louis always looking for another pet thing to do. He could circle back around. Yeah, yeah you think he wants to go back to the last thing he did that didn't work? <laughs> no, it did. I, I don't even say it did work uh, on many levels, and he we both loved the show. But um, it was right after that that he began his uh, ascent to the uh, presidency of show business. Right. It's because it's precisely because it didn't work. Yes, it forced him to rethink what he was doing. It, uh, well, that and the show still got him way more exposure than he'd ever gotten before. So yeah. when he went back out on tour, he was suddenly, a, oh, it's that guy from that show. Right. So he it opened up the stand-up world, and of course his act was also ready to, uh, you know, he was ready to take a million steps forward there. So I think that was a good combination of things. Well, let's go backwards with you first, though. Um, when you were a kid, did you watch a lot of TV? Yes. <laughs> I was definitely a, you know, get you, my mom limited our TV after a while, you know, and it wasn't that big a limit. I think it was 10 hours a week, not counting weekends. So that's still, you know, two hours a day if right. you're, you know, a lot of times I didn't even come to that. But the reason it got limited was because we would sit around on a Saturday from seven in the morning and watch every cartoon through until one in the afternoon and all the primetime series in the seventies. My heyday was that late 70s, um, Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, Rockford Files, Quincy, um, you know, these were Love Boat, Fantasy Island. Mm-hmm. That was not necessarily the most uh, stellar quality shows, but those are the things I watched. No, I watched those, usually with a babysitter. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Norman shows I watched too, but I was a little on the young side. You know, I watched them more in syndication and stuff. Mm-hmm. I was too young for all in the family. I was told I wasn't allowed to watch it. Mary Tyler Moore, big, you know, Bob Newhart. Mm-hmm. Norman shows were just a little more Did you adult. have siblings? Yes, I have a brother who's a year younger and then sister four years younger and another sister eight years younger. Oh, so as the oldest, you probably got control of the TV. You got to decide what I mean, watched? back then, you know, it's like we had the main TV, then we had the one that would go in somebody's bedroom that mm-hmm. was a portable that got moved around kind of. So I don't think there was that much control. <laughs> At what age did you start to develop dreams or thoughts that you could have a career in television? I mean, a career in television, I, I'm not sure. Or sh- be on it or be part of it. It was... St- was it, that... Was that? I mean, stand-up, I was... So so I was uh, 
11 when Saturday Night Live came on, and I was um, 16 when Letterman, oh no, sorry, seven, 16 when Letterman's daytime show came on. Uh, in between there was Fernwood Tonight. That makes you a true fan if you're mentioning his morning show. Oh, the best thing ever. That was my favorite thing ever. I mean, of course, Late Night was also my favorite thing ever. But the daytime show was like a secret, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, – I used to watch it. Uh, I had a job over the summer at York Steakhouse as a busboy. And I would – at the mall. And I would have to start at 12. And I would sit in my bed and watch the show from 10 to 11.30, bolt out of bed, you know, jump in the shower, run to the mall and be at my shift at 12 and I watched like every day that summer. Um, so I, I'm such, you know, I'm a, I'm a, that comedy genre, that comedy, uh, when, when those things were starting, that's mm-hmm. what I became obsessed with Saturday night live. We, you know, we would go to my grandparents cottage where they had one TV that got one channel. This is on Lake Ontario. There's no reception. And the one channel was snowy and it was 1130 and there's like, 40 people in the cottage, uh, in this one room cottage, sleeping, all sleeping on the floor. And I've got the TV on, trying to just hear the sketches at 1130 <laughs> through the snow. Trying, you know, I was obsessed with it. And, and Fernwood Tonight and Second City TV. And so those things made me want to be a comedian, but I never really thought I would have the courage to be a comedian. So what were you going to do instead? I went to film school. Okay, so you you were going to be in the business. Yes. I I mean, yeah. And it's funny. You say that. It's because it just seemed like so impossible. So it wasn't like I was like, I'm going to be in the business. I just was like, well, I'll go to film school. I don't like films. But the next step was mystery, you know, mysterious. It just seems like it's such an impossible thing to ever actually achieve. Wait, so what did you plan on doing with a film school degree? I I mean, (laughs) make films, I guess. I was was in, like, theater in in high school, Mm -hmm. so I went back and forth about acting. I kind of wanted to be an actor, but that felt a little too daunting. And I made films with my friends, so I decided when I went to college, maybe I'll, that I'll, I'll do this. And, you know, I was excited about it. And I loved film school, and I made a couple of films there, and I made a lot of good film school friends. Um, so it was, you know, but it's still, by the time I got done, I was a little like, now what? You know, I, it's not like I step into a position at, you know, Paramount or something. Uh, were you in New York or LA at the time? I was in, I mean, I grew up in Syracuse, so I moved okay. to New York right after college. And, uh, that was my, uh, yeah, my, the, my trajectory was I then tried to get like PA work and yeah, I went to Ithaca College and they gave me a big list of numbers to call. And, you know, I would call and just kind of go come hang out on set and the things that you're supposed to go work for free and ingratiate yourself. And I went through a number of hilarious Horrible, not not so much horrible, but kind of crazy PA gigs. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a the 1986 Mets World Series. Oh. Um, I, I got a PA job. Davy Johnson filmed a Roll Aids commercial between Game Six and Game Seven, and I got to really? come. Yes, on at Shea Stadium. Mm-hmm. So I sat there watching Game Six, going crazy like everybody else. Yeah. And then two days later, or whatever it was a day later, I got a PA job for this Roll Aids commercial. Um, hold, I was holding up a reflector at one point. They sent me on a, on a run in a van to go get baseballs for Davey to sign for basically the whole crew. Mm-hmm. And I'm like bombing around flushing New York. No idea where I'm going. And of course there's no GPS or anything like that. Nice. Trying to find a fucking sports, uh, uh, equipment store. And, uh, but I, I got to be, uh, 
you know, on the field at Shea Stadium between Game Six and Game Seven. I remember if I'm, I'm this might be my memory playing tricks on me, but I'm pretty sure Ron Darling was out there, kind of like throwing the ball around. Well, there was also like a rainout. Maybe that was it. Maybe that's why there was seven. the time. Yeah, feels I can't quite place the time, but it was definitely between Game Six and Game Seven. Hmm. So yeah, that was one thing, and you know, I went on some corporate gig where they, you know. Hired. I, I didn't even get hired. I just came along. So there's a cameraman. There's a sound guy. Neither of them knew how to operate either of the pieces of equipment. And I was the only one, the free student guy, who actually knew how to sort of work it. So I kind of saved the day. And we all showed up back at the guy's office back in near Times Square. And it was this really old Asian guy, I just remember, who ran some kind of commercial house and who knew I had worked the day for free and who knew somehow the backstory of how I had kind of saved it. And I just remember walking to his office and he just kind of looks at me and nods and pulls out a drawer and like reaches in and grabs a $20 bill and just goes, thank you. <laughs> and puts $20, like a 16 hour day. <laughs> I mean, but I was supposed to work for free. So it was right. a cool, a very cool gesture actually. And you know, you hadn't done stand up comedy yet. So you didn't know that $20 was a good payday. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes. Well, he didn't give me a free meal. So <laughs> I didn't get to drink, order from the left side of the drink menu. tickets. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How long were you doing that before you got the bug to do stand-up? I pretty quickly, since I was living in New York, and it was sort of like the world is my oyster, like, uh, uh, you know, this PA stuff. The PA stuff and getting crew work, I realized was going to be a tremendous amount of work to even just get work, to Mm -hmm. freelance like that. You have to really hustle. And so that's fine, but I kind of had a realization like, well, that's going to lead me down a certain road. So should I just retrench? I kind of, by that time, I kind of wanted to write. So maybe I should just get a, like a regular day job and write at night. So like that was, I, so I then gave up trying to look for crew work and I got, I, I just started temping. Okay. I, I worked for manpower, you know, manpower mm-hmm. temps. I worked at MetLife for a very long time. And then I sort of settled into a long-term temp job at Citibank. I was, you know, an administrative assistant for this uh, woman, vice president, um, and that gave me the freedom to kind of, okay, I'm going to write. And then I sort of started thinking, well, I've always wanted to do stand up. never really thought I would do it, but here I am in New York city. If I go to Pips open mic, mm-hmm. the legendary, I think not with yeah. us anymore, but sheep's head Bay Pips. Deep, yeah. In deep Brooklyn. Yeah. Yes. I'm going to go out there. If I go on stage, if some, if I bomb, who, I'm never going to see these people ever again. Like the anonymity gave me courage. And, uh, so I tried it and, uh, the first couple of times I actually did okay. And, uh, the third time was the most horrible bomb, horrible feeling I've ever had in my life. And I didn't do it again for six months, but then some, and I really had a, th- on my way home from that gig, I thought to myself, I will never be a stand-up comic because I can't <laughs> endure <laughs> this that emotional low. I feel so bad about myself right now. But somehow, I don't know, I healed up and went back out there and I don't know. Then I started making friends, other scarred individuals. Right. Who, who were those other scarred? Well, my graduating class was yeah. Dave Attell. Okay. You know, so Dave and I became pretty good friends at the, during those open mic days. And we had day jobs that were like a few blocks apart. Mm-hmm. And Dave Juskow also, who kind of floated in and out of the stand up scene, who I went to college with. Um, I mean, Danny Vermont, you know, who I went to college with as well. Um, uh, John Stewart was actually in my graduating class, but he was, 
he was like a ringer. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like he started so much better than everybody else <laughs> that he was always like a few steps ahead no matter what. So we, we would hang out, but he was just getting work so much quicker than everybody else. It was, he was, he was not really part of the open mic scene. But Dave and I would have lunch almost every day, uh, with Dave Juskow at either the, uh, Citibank cafeteria. We kind of rotate the chemical bank cafeteria or the discovery. Well, those are the two. Dave was a assist. Dave was a receptionist for Discovery Channel. If Attell? you can imagine David Tell answering the phones for Discovery Channel, that's what he was doing. Yeah. Let's pause and imagine that now. Yeah. Discovery Channel. I'm, I, I can't do the imitation. Who had the best cafeteria? Chemical Bank. Yes. Citibank was okay, but Chemical Bank was the sweet one, if mm-hmm. I remember right. What I think made Dave, it sweeter? It was just better food, if I remember right. And Dave Juskow, can, he knows these details. But if I remember right, that was the one. They just had like a better – yeah, it was more choices. And yeah. did all of your bosses know that you were – you and the two Daves were aspiring comedians? Uh, or did my you, bosses did you cross- knew. And, yeah. and in fact, those people who I worked for in my little area, they came to some shows. Uh, Dave's, I don't know. And mm-hmm. like I said, Dave Jessica was kind of like in and out. Um, I'm, I'm forgetting people. This is awful. But, That's um, all right. No, the story I tell about Dave – a tell that, um, you know, <laughs> I, I have a certain mentality that is not necessarily conducive to being accurate. Well, the story goes like this. <laughs> Dave was, Dave was a comics comic from the get go. Right. So he was fucking hilarious. It's okay to say that on yeah. this. Okay. Um, I mean, the, you know, from, this is the comics comic, so you can say. Oh my God, that's right. <laughs> Product placement. No, that's not, doesn't make any sense. I mean, he was hysterical always, but in the beginning, he was really hysterical mostly to the comics. And he had yet to get any confidence the way you do, you know, mm-hmm. have your confidence when you start. And, um, so he was really making the back of the room laugh, but not making the crowds laugh and bombing. He, so I guess what I'm saying is when he, I would bomb in the most generic of ways. I would bomb, like, people would kind of talk. I'd get, maybe get some pity laughs. Mm-hmm. It, it didn't, it wasn't epic. It was just normal. It was like, eh, here's a mediocre comic. <laughs> Dave would bomb in ways where it was like, oh, my God, this is fucking embarrassing. This is like, <laughs> wow. Because he would immediately start to shit on himself, but mm-hmm. he didn't have all his, he didn't have his material yet. So he would just start to go, oh, this is awful. This is terrible. In a sort of a Larry David, but you know what I mean? Like, where it's just awkward, just yeah. awkward. And, and still maybe sometimes the comics are laughing because it's so awkward, but sometimes you just felt so bad for him. And again, this is open mic days, you know? And, uh, I have a very vivid memory one day after a particularly bad open mic. So we're having lunch the next day and I'm thinking to him and he's depressed and I'm depressed. We're all depressed the whole time, but he was really depressed. And I remember thinking, if I'm a good friend, I'm going to have a talk with him and tell him to stop doing stand up because this, he, this is not good for him. He just can't take it. You know, like this is not, he's not, look how unhappy he is. So just imagine if I had had that talk <laughs> and it had, had some kind of effect. <laughs> I don't want to give myself that much power, but like how wrong was I <laughs> <laughs> to, tr- to even think that David Tell should quit stand up? Yeah. It should, you know. Well, but that's, that's, it was just, I was just being a good friend. But that's and, the curious thing about, you know, the creative field and stand up in particular is that each comedian has to fight through that period where yeah. they don't know quite their connection with the audience. Yeah. Well, that, that, the, what makes the, the other reason side why of that experience yeah. was I started getting work a little bit ahead of Dave. Like I passed at catch 
and I passed it the seller, mm-hmm. which was actually quite hard in those days. And Ray Romano helped me a little bit. So I, and then Bill Grunfest moved to LA. And so, and he was the forever uh, MC. Right. He's the guy who started the comedy night there. Yeah. So. And he was MC every night. So then suddenly all the, they had, they needed MCs. Uh, so I just got to MC probably well ahead of my MC skills being there. And I got to learn on the job and, um, eventually become pretty good at it. But anyway, I was working at the cellar and I'm doing like, I'm doing okay, but you know, I'm not, I'm still at the low rung. And, uh, Ray Romano comes in one, you know, and I, he's, and he suddenly, he's like setting himself up with dinner in the room, you know, and he's like, I want to see this new, this new guy. He's so funny. And it's a tell. And suddenly a tell had passed at the, at the improv, mm-hmm. I believe. And he had passed, he was coming in maybe to audition or I don't know. Suddenly David Tell was the talk of the town and he just had flipped the switch and found himself. And I had missed it because I was like working the, you know, I was basically holed up at the cellar and we were still in contact and stuff, but it really, it turned around fast. And then suddenly he was on his tear, you know, to be the, so I still think pretty much the most hilarious guy in the world. He is. Um, at what point were you able to stop temping that was around i mean that was a few years like three or four years in i was able to really do it very gradually uh you know i do remember uh, i sort of i left citibank that was a big move to to do more spotty temping instead of like because that was like an everyday nine to five job um so yeah i just became catch as catch can a little bit Uh, i got like a graphics job that was just very like do four hours here and four hours there but by like 91, I started in 80, end of 87, really 88. And by 91, I was, again, through the grace of the comedy seller. That was really, because there I could make 75 to 100 bucks a night emceeing. So get a few nights under your belt and you don't need much more. There was a recession. New York City had not exploded yet. My apartment was 300 bucks a month in the East Village, you know. These were the days. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember that one moment though when you, when you realized that you were going to be a full-time comedian and you didn't need to worry about temp jobs or, or a plan B. Or... Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I, I have like two, you know, I have a couple of, of like, oh, you know, you're going to make it, kid, right. moments. When I passed a catch for the first time, that was a big moment. And Lewis Franda made it very dramatic. He probably doesn't remember this, but, you know, um, I came in. I feel like there was like a snowstorm or something. It was a, I think it was a prom show. So I, I had, I, I had, he had allowed, like, I, I had gotten, I was allowed to hang out there, mm-hmm. but I wasn't, I hadn't passed. And I forget if I had audition or what happened, but I, anyways, hanging out, it's like prom show, comics aren't there, it's going late, they just need somebody, they just need a body, so they throw me up. And I did really well, and I, you know, it was like a normal spot of 15 minutes, and uh, I came off and he, like, he does a big, like, he, he gestures over to me very dramatically, walks me out to the bar, he goes, who's the bartender, Gary? No. Jeff, Jeff Seichner, right? <laughs> Do I have the name right? Jeff, pay Mike. He's one of the boys now. Like that was, <laughs> all right. That's like out of a movie. <laughs> <laughs> You're a made man. Yeah. And then, of course, I didn't get spots for a long time. But I had passed. <laughs> and then there was, I, I do remember um, when I got engaged, I went, I was now working the road a little mm-hmm. bit. So I wasn't making a lot of money. And I'm working some pretty terrible gigs on the road. And, uh, when I went on the road, my wife was, I, I said, don't, we're going to move in together. Maybe we weren't even engaged yet. That's right. We're going to move in together in my apartment. I live in the East village. It's a shitty, crappy, the worst apartment in the world, but 300 bucks a month. So she's going to go look for places. And I'm like, don't look without me because 
you know. And of course, I go on the road. She looks without me. She finds a place, a thousand bucks a month. And, you know, we're going to split it. So mm-hmm. it's still $500 a month. So it's $200 more a month. And I remember thinking, okay, I guess I got to, like, I guess I'm a comic now. Like, I have to now <laughs> really make this a profession or else right. I'm going to get evicted with my fiance. <laughs> so it became really like, oh, I guess this is my business now because it has to be because I need the money. And at that point, was your goal then just to be a working yeah. Working road comedian? I never, I mean, the road I tried to avoid unless I liked the place, which mm-hmm. there were certain catch in Princeton was great. The Acme in Minneapolis, fantastic. I mean, there's great clubs out there, but I never, I, you know, I, I had a couple of years of doing a lot of strung together one nighters. It was for, you know, Atlantic City, Kephart Room, the, the nearby places uh, that I was able to work. Luckily, the MC stuff plus then warm-up stuff started coming. Oh, okay. So I wasn't – I didn't have to work the road very much. I could stay in the city pretty exclusively. What was your experience as a warm-up like? Well, so Mike Sweeney, who was the longtime head writer for Conan, still over at Conan, um, then was the warm-up comic for the Maury Povich show. And he, he, I believe, got the writing job on Conan or a writing job and left and told, he recommended me to take over. And so I did. And that, that was my first regular warm up gig, weird as it was, because it's sometimes the shows are dealing with super serious topic and it's, it's topics and it's obviously not a comedy show to begin with. My very first warm up gig was for the original John Stewart show on MTV. Oh, very nice. You know, John is, I, I don't know, as loyal as they come. He gave me this job. You know, we were friends, but it's not like we were like, best buds who, you know, we just, he, we, we knew each other from the scene, yeah. you know, and, um, he hired, you know, told them to give me the, you know, his, told his production company to give me the, the warm up job pretty much sight unseen. He just knew I was a good MC. Warm up is a different story. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was, I did a good job, but it was definitely like, okay, I'll, I guess I'm, I'm of course I'm going to say yes, but I don't <laughs> have any experience doing this. And I did it, and he's just very—he's a good, loyal person, that John Stewart. <laughs> um, so that was my first warm-up gig, and I did—I think the two two seasons of that. Then he moved to the syndicated thing, and I wasn't—I was at Maury, and then I didn't do that show. Did you like being a warm-up, an audience warm-up? It depended on the gig. To be perfectly frank, John Stewart show was was hard. Um, the state would come and sit in the audience. And there's a fucking million of them. Right. <laughs> and they were not the most attentive <laughs> audience. <laughs> Didn't want to see. I mean, you can imagine this is, they're kind of the, is it a highfalutin term to say sui generis? What's the, what's that term? Like, they're like the, the origin of alternative comedy. You know, I look at them as like, like when they started making their mark, I was like, oh, I'm not, not that I was ever cool, but I'm really not cool now. Cause they're, that's cool comedy, what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And I'm just some guy with like pushed up sleeves and, you know, a blazer and whatever. Skinny tie? I didn't really have all that stuff, but I felt like I did. <laughs> you know, per- persona wise, I mm-hmm. felt like that's how I was coming off when those guys started to come around. And so, so it was, I felt like on the John Stewart show, I'm at like the hippest place in the world. And, you know, I'm only 27, but I already felt like I'm old. <laughs> These kids don't want to see me. Uh, but it, whatever, it went fine. It went fine. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't, it wasn't like, I want to do this forever. Uh, I did later do Spin City. Okay. And that was a lot of fun. And that could be four, five, six hours. 
you know, but the audience was great and Bill Lawrence was super supportive and, um, it just was a lot of fun. You know, I mean, there would be kind of hard nights, but, um, it was a generally speaking, a very fun show to do. And Maury show was great because the people, it wasn't always fun, but it was, it was, first of all, it was in the morning. So it was 10 AM. So I'd be out till three in the morning at the cellar and I'd wake up and, you know, run across to Chelsea, uh, studios on 27th and uh, 26th and 7th and, and pour like a giant cup of coffee and just slam ice cubes and slam it down and run on stage. And, uh, stumble my way through and uh but the the sometimes you were the only fun thing they were going to see that day because they have a show full of you know people who were molested or you know i mean just serious serious topics so you when you come out they'd be like oh my god thank god <laughs> thank god the fun boys here <laughs> um so that wasn't wasn't bad and i end up building a little mailing list and so that was before the you're not the father <laughs> yes this was this was when the Maury really? show was really just, let's try to just do as many topics as we can and be kind of a Mo Oprah type right. show, you know. Um, did working on Spin City, though, did that make working on the writing production side of a sitcom seem more appealing to you? Because that's what your life has become. Well, yes. It, it um, you know, just being there, suddenly it becomes more real. And I had at that point not really been a writer for 10 years. I'd been a comic for 10 years and I'd be, now I'd become like an actual good comic. Mm -hmm. Um, so I knew what I was doing. So just being there, you know, Bill gave me a acting job on the show against everyone's better judgment. And, uh, they were nice enough to give it to me, but I didn't have to audition. So suddenly, you know, you, the value of a connection. And I did a scene where I played Michael Boltman's uh, boyfriend for a scene. They gave me, you know, sort of bulletproof jokes that a monkey could do. And I got through the scene. And, uh, then I, you know, I wrote a spec and Bill read it, uh, or didn't read it. <laughs> I gave it to Bill and then he hired me to do an outside script. So I got to do my first script. Uh, I'd had a writing job before that for the Scar Brothers show on MTV. That was 1997 for, uh, Apartment 2F. Um, but this was the first like true sitcom, network sitcom that I got to work on was Spin City. So that made like, oh, maybe I want to do this. Eric, actually Gary, David Goldberg was starting another show called Battery Park that okay. was out here because Spin City was in New York, of course. And um, they wanted to hire me as the stand-up. Uh, sorry, as the warm-up. Mm -hmm. But I would have to move out here to be the warm-up for that show. Still a really good gig, paying a handsome sum. But at that point, I was kind of like, mm, I think we're going to try and stick to the writing. you know. And then stuff started to come around. And that's the next phase of my journey, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's where you, that's where your uh, your friendship with Ray Romano helps out. Yes, yes. That the the way I really uh, came out here and and got my toehold into where I am now, I guess you could say, is um, Ray the Everbellers Raymond had started, and it, it was like season two. You know, I, I pretty much I hadn't lost touch with Ray, but you know, now he was like famous guy. Mm -hmm. We weren't really in contact that much. And, uh, but suddenly he was going on tour, but I think between the second and third seasons, because now he's famous Ray Romano. So he can pull, uh, he can rake it in a little bit. And he was nice enough to hire a bunch of us people from the old days to open for him. So I went on a few gigs with him mm -hmm. on the East Coast. And at the same time, he was writing a book based on his stand up. So as we're traveling around together, he's showing me pages from the book. 
and he was like, if you have any material, I, I kind of need to fill the book out. Mm-hmm. And I gave him a little stuff, and he and he ended up liking it. And he wanted more, and then he hired me to fax stuff for like some money per week. And then he ended up just having me come into it. Like he ended up liking it more and more, and then we ended up kind of holing up in his office for two months, essentially rewrite. He had a he had a writer that he mm-hmm. was working with, and then he hired me as well to to work with him. Um, so just that working experience made him, I think, a fan of my writing as opposed to just my buddy. Um, and then Phil, I got to know Phil too. And Phil the ice, Phil Rosenthal, yes. And then a job opened up and I think the icing on the cake was Ray came out to New York when I was still in New York in 1999 to do a Saturday Night Live. And I wrote a sketch for him that ended up doing very well. And it was in the um, one of my proudest things. It was in the Rolling Stone top fifty SNL sketches. That's uh, his Sports Center sketch. Okay. For, um, so whatever. I think that Phil was out too. Phil, you know, the, the three of us wrote sketches for him. I think that probably helped Phil see that I'm not just like Ray's buddy. That I could you have, you have value. Have some value <laughs> exactly. Um, and so then when a job opened up, when Ray said I want to hire Mike, Phil was like, Yeah, let's do it. So after, you know, this second half of your career where you're a writer, producer, showrunner, you know, you've gotten to work with Ray again with Men of a Certain Age. And all of these projects, Men of a Certain Age, Enlisted, even Lucky Louie, you know, they're good shows. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, no one will dispute that. I mean, whether whether they were rating successes or not. Right, right. What has what has kind of kept you going from, I mean, from show to show right. and not just going, well... I guess people I, don't I, like my shit. I can't... Or, or, the, <laughs> or the right people aren't liking it. Yeah. Because people are liking it. It's just maybe not one particular network executive. No, right. Or one... Or, you know, I mean... One listen, person who's focused on numbers or one person who's... there. I can lecture you for a good six hours about why... Enlisted, and I'm pointing to the post behind me, and men of a certain age didn't get ratings that they needed to, but mm-hmm. whatever the reasons are, to be fair to those networks, they didn't, it's not like they canceled them. There was no vindictiveness. It was right. just like, hey, they weren't doing good enough. There's reasons, and I, I feel, um, a, a sense of injustice <laughs> in some, some ways, but, but, the, you know, they weren't canceled for like some kind of weird political reason or anything like that. Um, the, the main thing is, I've had a career that I can only dream about because you only, I don't, I, like, Men of a Certain Age was, first of all, that was five years of my life. It doesn't, it's weird because it was only 22 episodes. But we finished Lucky Louie, you know, um, uh, Ray and I started getting together just to, ostensibly to like, write a movie because he was unemployed, I was unemployed. We're like, let's just try to think of something to do together. We hadn't worked together since Raymond. And it quickly became this this show and then HBO, uh, Chris Albrecht, who was there at the time, learned about it. They made me a development deal. You know, at that point, getting Ray back on television was a gigantic uh, opportunity for right. them. And uh, But it took, you know, we developed for a year at HBO. They passed on it. Then there was the writer's strike. Um, this story is starting to get diffuse. The point is, all that time, then we did the first, the pilot took a whole year, the season one, season two. It was all stuff that I loved working on. So who cares that it's like, I wish I could, the only thing you wish is that you could keep doing it. But, you know, when Men of a Certain Age came out, I remember driving to Paramount. 
I was really in the dark about how it was going to be received. I sometimes know and sometimes I don't know. And in this case, I was like, I really, I, I love the show. Like, I know my internal heart says this is a good show. So part of me is like, fuck everybody because I love it. So who cares? Mm-hmm. And that's the most important thing. But, you know, you're wondering, how's it going to be received? And I'm driving to Paramount where we did the show. And Ray um, was like, calls me, hey, got Entertainment Weekly, first review. What do you think the re- – give me a guess. Give me a guess. <laughs> and I can just tell there's something in his voice because I'm like, there's something that tells me it's good because he's he's – this is his favorite game, which is mm-hmm. don't tell me, don't even give me any information. I want to guess and don't bias me. And just the way you're looking at me, I can tell you ruined it because you just blinked at me and now I understand it's a negative review. <laughs> but there was something about, so he was doing it to me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, there was something I was like, B plus, which was like to me great. And he's like, A minus. <laughs> <laughs> uh, really? It's like, yeah, it's a really good review. And then they started cascading out after that. And generally speaking, they were very good. I mean, it's not that you live for reviews, but you do want validation. And then we established this really loyal fan base. So when you hear from fans and Twitter was just starting then. So, you know, you just, you just when you when you're doing something that you think is great and then other people think it's great. That's the only thing that matters. The fact that maybe there's only five of them and <laughs> there should be five million. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a unfortunate thing of the business. But when you're doing good work, you're doing good work. You feel good about it. Same thing with enlisted. And now uh, with uh, One Day at a Time, I feel the same way. And we're very fortunate with One Day at a Time that we've, we've had a really good reception. And hopefully we're on a platform where it will not be short-lived, you know. So it's, it's, it's the comfort of knowing that, that the work was good that gets you yes. to keep doing more? I have done And not work just becoming that, bitter? No, not bitter. The bitter the, there's two feelings. Um, there's, I mean, there's many things. There's a lot of feelings, people. <laughs> um, but there's, I hate this and I love this. I know there's a lot of stuff in between, right. but I've done projects where I dread or just worked on stuff where you dread going to the office because I don't believe in this creatively. And I've, it's been very rare for me, very rare. But when you have that feeling, when you're working on a pilot, and you actually hope the pilot maybe doesn't go because you're like, oh, no, like this is going to be my life for five years. So that's you're successful if that happens. But, oh, my God, horrible. So horrible five years versus, you know, two seasons of something that you really loved. I'll take the two years <laughs> any day. Then you go on and try to do something else that's good, you know. And I've been fortunate to have more opportunities. That's the thing. The other thing is, uh, you know, if you do good work, people want to hire you again. What's hilarious in Hollywood is that you do something that is critically acclaimed but but doesn't get ratings. Mm-hmm. People love what you did, but don't do that again. <laughs> so there's a lot of like, man, that man of a certain age, I love that. Oh, really? Because I'd love to do another kind of a dramedy. Yeah, no, 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 nobody wants that. But <laughs> we'd love to work with you if you just stay away from that shit. But if you know you, so they respect your ability. Mm-hmm. But please don't do that thing that got canceled. <laughs> Um, but you do it. Uh, I mean, I'm being flipped, but right. if you do good work, people want to work with you again, even if it didn't necessarily succeed ratings wise. Um, there's still discerning, you know, people want to work with people who do good work, not people who do bad work. Yeah. And, um, if you I'm were sounding very full of myself right now, <laughs> and I apologize to anyone. Well, no, I wanted, I wanted, I wanted to hear what keeps you going and 
So yes, as long as I, the point is good or bad, you, everyone else is the judge of that. But if I believe in it, that's all I care about. So if on the flip side, if somebody brand new to the business is coming to you for advice, at this, I mean, everything has changed now from even your first TV job. Right. What What would you even tell them now? Well, it's, I mean, you know, I'm the old guy now, so my advice is a little bit creaky, but... Yeah you see what happens now is that there's all these formats to display yourself creatively. So whether it's Twitter or, I mean, Vine's, oh, Vine's already come and gone, <laughs> but YouTube uh, or any of that stuff, you know, when you can make stuff, I mean, Gloria, my partner, uh, Gloria calderon Calvet, my partner on One Day at a Time has, you know, all kinds of, she's a fountain of this great advice because she has done this stuff. She's a playwright. She put up one act play, uh, you know, uh, uh, nights of plays to get exposure for her writing and for her acting because she's a really good actress as well. She's done uh, short film, you know, short mm-hmm. films. You know, she, because um, she, she had a different path than me. You know, I came up through comedy, stand-up comedy, and my connections were formed there. She came up in a true sort of act. I'm an actor. I have to get exposure for myself, actor, uh, writer. And there's lots of places to display yourself. If you can make a calling card, whether it's a short film, a, a, you know, YouTube video, or just some funny fucking tweets, um, you can get noticed somehow. And people just want to have confidence that you are you are funny or you are talented. And so there's a, a lot of ways to display that. And it's it's good now. I think it's good that you have more options as opposed to ten. 20 years ago it the i guess the downside is there's also everyone has that opportunity so you get a little lost but um but yeah there's more i mean when it's it's amazing to me as a guy who grew up making super eight films with no sound generally speaking underexposed you can't see a fucking thing on the screen um always you know editing there's no editing <laughs> you know to have the tools that you have now, right. at least, is with your make an amazing film with just your phone, is pretty great. Well, Mike, uh, I'm 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 glad that we finally got to sit down and uh, and uh, thanks for making all of the great stuff you have made. Thank you, and please, everybody, watch one day at a time <laughs> on Netflix. <laughs> um, it's 13 episodes. It's a great arc. It's very bingeable, but you don't have to binge it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I, I am super proud of the show and um, thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> last this episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. Theme music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com. For more interviews, reviews, and comedy news, become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first. Last things first.